0: wbz chicago in the oil fields of oklahoma this is pleasure town around the turn of the last century a group of folk built their dream a town where happiness was the main objective but as history has shown nothing gold can stay so make yourself comfy and join us as we explore the remains of pleasure town
1: Welcome back, friend. It's your buddies, Cyrus and Claude here.
0: And we are still coming at you from the great beyond.
1: Growing Pleasure Town from two to a hundred was a trial. Growing from one hundred to four hundred was, in comparison, nothing at all.
0: As more people started coming to town, the more the town started to run itself. Which was good, because it freed me up to do what I do best. Drinking and gambling.
1: And there were plenty of people willing to join you. But the more we grew, the more our community started to change. We began to attract the educated and refined.
0: Didn't really take to them at first. Too frilly for my taste.
1: They might have been clean, but they were desperate for a cleanse. And Pleasure Town was a baptism they were looking for.
0: Living in a place like New York City or Chicago ain't something to be proud of. It's just the place where you're planted, you're behind. It's not like you built the Empire State with your bare hands. Not like Pleasure Town. If we wanted water, we had to dig a well. If we wanted wood, we had to chop it ourselves.
1: And by ourselves, he means everyone but him.
0: That's because I was busy civil engineering. Anyway... As Pleasure Town grew, we ended up attracting the attention of some of these big city outsiders. And let me tell you, ain't nothing rattle your big city mind like small town living.
2: Dateline April 1, 1892, Pleasure Town, Oklahoma. Salutations, dear readers. I was deprived of sleep, and desperate for any sort of victual I could find when I first rolled into Pleasure Town, a settlement so new that it has yet to be inscribed on any map. The journey from New York City to the Oklahoma Territory, by way of St. Louis, was a long and difficult one, particularly given the harsh winter which blew arctic winds of such force down upon us as we crossed the bridge over the Mississippi River that we lost two oxen and a stagecoach. But here I arrived. And thankfully there was a local inn whose proprietor was kind enough to throw a pot of water on the fire and prepare me a bowl of soup that first night those six weeks ago. It has become a bit of a trend these days for the dreamers, drunk on American exceptionalism, to enact social experiments through civil engineering. From the UNITA community in New York to the Harmony Society in Pennsylvania, these architects of civilization have attempted to manifest their visions of a new utopia right in our own backyards. I have covered many of these communities, immersing myself among their locals in order to get a sense of their customs, beliefs, and habits, which I then share with you, my readers. But with this pleasure town, I must admit I am a bit enamored. The settlement has been in existence for less than a decade, and already it is one of the most populated communities in the former Cheyenne-Arapaho lands. It seems that the spirit of this town, a spirit built on the foundations of hedonism and the unbridled pursuit of one's own happiness, has resonated deeply with many a lost soul, beckoning them with its siren song of vice, pleasure, and satisfaction. Perhaps that is why there appear to be so many restless spirits here. My love for the town is rooted in the modesty of its people. These are salt-of-the-earth folk a breed and class of man that we do not much see in the metropolis of New York. I hesitate to describe them as simple, though the peculiar awkwardness of their accents can lead one to assume a sort of dim-wittedness. But I must attest that they are smart, with brains as sharp and quick as a steel trap. I suppose that's what living the frontier life will do to you, where one must be resourceful enough to carve out his own living while fending off danger at every turn. I look to bring you further tales of the town's inhabitants, but for now, a hootenanny is calling my name. May every step lead you to paradise.
3: It started the first time I rode a train. I was a girl back then, just ten years old. I was spending the day with my favorite uncle, who was my favorite uncle because he let me put my hair up and wear pants. On those days, I got to run the way I always wanted to. Chase geese in Central Park, run up and down the library steps, live for a few hours, moving through the world without anyone telling me to stop. My uncle took me to the train station as a surprise We were taking a short day trip We stepped into the station and my breath caught in my chest I loved the way the trains pulled out of the station Wheels spun against other wheels to make motion Black coal smoke covered everything and seemed to be a blanket of progress Everything buzzed and hummed My eyes wanted to eat everything I saw I climbed onto the train and sat down in my seat, trying to control my breath. There was a man sitting across from me. He had glasses and a yellowed mustache. He saw my pants, didn't see my hair, and assumed that I was a boy. He struck up a conversation, and when I inquired, he handed me the book he was reading, told me to keep it. It was by Mark Twain, On the Mississippi. He only gave it to me because he thought I was a boy. I didn't correct him. I forgot about the train when I read the words. I hadn't known I was thirsty, but now this book was quenching me. The words told me about life out west. They told me how a man could live in the world. There weren't any women in this book, but I didn't care. All the women I knew were useless anyway. I couldn't let it end there with the train ride, so I started stealing more books from my uncle, from libraries. My mother said it was unseemly to see a lady read. She'd throw everything but my school books into the fire. So I started to store my books under the floorboards, Oh, they got so dusty when I pulled them back out at night. I would swoosh away the spiders and start reading, curled up around my candle so no one in the hallway could see the flame from under the door. I barely slept in those days. I was so tired, but the words propelled me forward.
2: Dateline, May 6, 1892, Pleasure Town, Oklahoma. Salutations, dear readers. While my previous adventures have exposed me to an array of peculiar characters, nothing compares to the residents of Pleasure Town. Take, for instance, Shaman John, a man from Utah. He's part of the Mormon movement, that budding sect of religious zealots who follow the teachings of the self-proclaimed prophet Joseph Smith. Shaman John seems like a nice man, though somewhat conflicted. This oasis of freedom has surely awakened an internal spirit that is counter to the teachings of his people. But nonetheless, he sports the exterior of a jovial gentleman and is always a pleasure to cross paths with, even if at times he comes across as a bit of a loon. And then there is Ms. Barker, a woman I have come to know quite well through our series of interviews. She is a bit of a local celebrity. You see, Ms. Barker lays claim as the first murderess, or murderer for that matter, in Pleasure Town history. Knocked her husband Henry upside the head with a frying pan. Sounds domestic and quaint, but let me tell you, the woman has an intimidating presence. The murder shook up the town and forced the founders to reconsider their libertarian views, if only for a moment... But soon, once the whole mockery of a trial concluded, it was business as usual in Pleasure Town. I've also met the town doctor, a strange and quiet man of small stature who seems to keep largely to himself. His arrival coincided with mine, and it's a good thing too, as I can't possibly fathom how a community this booming could survive for so long without a medical professional. Then again, this is the frontier, and I have heard stories of cowboys sucking out snake venom and Indian salves that can heal even the most grave of illnesses. But it is certainly a relief to have a man of such learned nature take up residence here, and it bodes well for the survival of the community, as I do believe, like many of my progressive brethren, that a system of formal health care is a cornerstone to a functioning society. I just wish she had a warmer, bedside manner." And then, of course, I have met the town founders, Cyrus and Claude. Shortly after my arrival, interest in my visit erupted like a brush fire along the driest plains. In fact, not even a week had passed when I received a telegram at the inn from the founders themselves, inviting me to take up temporary residence in an unused storage closet on the second floor of the town library. It seems that Cyrus, the more reserved of the two, had amassed quite a collection of literature prior to the town's conception. While not the most comfortable of quarters, it will save myself and the paper a considerable sum while also providing me a quiet and undisturbed base of operations. And so I eagerly accepted the offer. Upon arriving at my new residence, I was greeted by the official city clerk, a scrawny, filthy adolescent who had the appearance of a London street urchin, He handed me an envelope and inside was a dinner invitation from the founders. I have to say, the generosity shown to strangers in this community took me aback. Rare, if not impossible, is it to find such magnanimous souls in old New York, a city whose little old ladies would sooner spit in your eye than knit you a scarf. Of course, I graciously accepted. I am sure my evening with the two colorful founders will occupy the majority of my next piece. Until then, may every step lead you to paradise.
3: Later, I'm 14 at dinner, and I'm dressed for dinner because we dressed for dinner. Because, you see and I'm embarrassed to admit this. My family was rich. Right fancy folk. My father was a big muckety-muck at a bank, and my mother was proud to be Mrs. Muckety-Muck. At dinner, my mother wants to discuss my coming out, my presentation to New York society. She has me wearing a corset that's two sizes too small, like she's trying to squeeze the words out of me. I can barely breathe, so I'm not eating, just staring at the roll on my plate. My mother keeps commenting that I need to eat, that boys don't like thin girls. My father is talking about a conversation he had at the bank that day where someone was dumb and he was smart. My mother is listening to him as though she's starving, and his words are food, which they are for her, because she doesn't have any ideas of her own. I stare at my father's beard as he speaks. The women I meet are all like my mama, vessels waiting to be filled with the ideas and thoughts of men, vessels waiting to be filled with and then expel the babies of men. The women stay home, keep the home, talk amongst themselves. I never heard a woman in my life claim to think, and next month I'm going to make my debut. Introduce myself to society as another pretty, empty, plump, pale, impossibly tiny wasted vessel just waiting to be filled. Another pretty thing to be collected and filled by a man. And then I hear my voice, my own coarse voice, interrupting my father. When am I going to meet a real woman? The table is silent, and my father flexes his lips underneath his beard. I hear my voice again. I just realize that I have never in my life met a real woman, a woman who's a person. I meet female ghosts all the time, though, specters who lurk inside homes, hoping for some contact with the real world. Didn't women used to be real? I've read a few books about them. Where can I find a real woman? My father was up right quick, right next to me at the table, and my face was red with his handprint before I even had time to feel the hit. All my questions were shoved back inside me. He then told me I had disrespected my mama. He told me to learn my place. He told me to leave his table before he beat me again. And I did leave. I went upstairs, took off my corset, took off my dress until I was down to my bloomers, filled a bag with books, climbed out the window, and shimmied down the drainpipe. I ran over to my uncle's and hid in his horse barn until late. Then I broke in, stole his clothes, put them on, cut off all my hair into the washbasin, carefully cleaned it out, waited until first light, walked to the station, and took the next train out of town. I decided that since real women don't exist, I'll take the only other option. I'll become a real man. Now, keeping this secret is fine as long as no one has occasion to look at your bits, which they usually don't, unless in the case that you become ill. So I had to either not get ill or learn how to cure myself getting into medical school wasn't too hard. Turns out, I had done more reading than most folks who went to college, and I had such practice at being something that I wasn't that twisting one lie, I'm a proper young lady, to the other side, I'm a proper young man, wasn't too hard either.
1: Pleasure Town will return in a moment. In its infancy, Pleasure Town was a sanctuary, a port for those who found the outside world as a threat or even an irritant. People didn't come here to find themselves. Rather, they came here because they knew we'd just let them be them.
0: Though some of them could have used a good knock upside the head.
1: (laughs) But, even in a refuge as unassuming as unassuming could be, some of our wayfaring strangers resisted Pleasure Town's warm embrace.
2: Dateline, June 5, 1892, Pleasure Town, Oklahoma. Salutations, dear readers. As one would imagine in a town that promotes excess, dinner was a gluttonous feast. Cyrus and Claude sat at the heads of the table as I took my position in the middle. An assortment of meats, stacks and stacks of meats, along with mashed potatoes and steamed greens were served in endless succession until I felt as if my shirt buttons would burst and the liquor. I have never seen men drink such volumes of libations, and I have traveled to the pubs of Ireland, where beer is drunk in greater frequency than water. Over our meal, as we became progressively more inebriated, the founders took turns relating stories of the town's earliest days, when survival was a question with no certain answer. I could see the passion in their eyes behind the glassiness of their drunken gazes, a dual fire that I have never seen in man before. Whereas the failure of other fringe communities has been caused by power-hungry leaders, these two gentlemen seem to be the real McCoy. While dinner was a refreshing and eye-opening encounter, it was not without its turbulence. As the night wore on and we all retired to the porch for a smoke, it became apparent that there is a growing rift between Cyrus and Claude. While both appear to share the vision of a community founded on pure and unadulterated freedoms, there is a moral discrepancy. Claude is, to put it simply, a lecher and a tippler. The man, who appeared to have three drinks for every one of mine, could not discuss any woman of the town without providing his own unsolicited commentary on her coital talents, whether real or assumed. Meanwhile, Cyrus was much more gentlemanly and hospitable, always keeping keen awareness of whether my glass required tending or my cigar another light. That's not to say Cyrus didn't enjoy his booze as well. Shortly before I was about to excuse myself and retire for the night, Claude, who had been in high spirits despite teetering over the porch's railing into a pile of manure, pulled me aside by putting his arm around me and bringing his mouth close to my ear. Then, between hiccups, he whispered, If you scratch down any sort of lies or aspersions in that article of yours and publish it in that New York paper, I will more than happily give you a smile that stretches from ear to ear. He then slung back his overcoat to show a blade tucked into the lip of his trousers. Sensing Claude might be out of hand, Cyrus appeared between the two of us and interrupted our tense moment with a hearty laugh claiming it was all in good fun, and that Claude just has, and I quote, a wicked sense of humor. I went to bed that night with my head spinning. Perhaps it was the grain alcohol, but I believe it was also due in part to the potential of this community. Yes, I have the opportunity for an amazing scoop. But there is also the opportunity for a real purpose, a real cause, and, most importantly, a real home. And now, dear reader, I must confess that I am sitting here at my makeshift writing desk in the old library storage closet with a handful of telegrams from my editor. He wishes for a draft of my next piece. I have not answered because, well, I have no answer. For the first time in my life, I am at a loss for words. So, for now, may every step lead you to paradise.
3: I got my degree in Missouri and heard tell of a place called Pleasure Town a place where every man gets to be who they want to be. So I moved here. Became the town doctor. The town accepted me real fast, especially because I keep my mouth shut about what I see because that's what doctors do, and that's what I do. Welcome though I was, I could not bring myself to let the disguise fall. There were moments heavy and tense moments where my suit and hat lay behind me in a pile. There's no reason I should hide, I'd scream at myself. And every time I'd walk up to the door and rest my palm upon the handle, I'd feel the hand of my father and freeze in total fear. Although I never let her out to play, the woman in me would not Could not remain still. She'd feel flashes of bitterness when I saw a flattering dress. She'd feel pangs of jealousy when I walked past the prostitutes, so confident in their bodies. She'd have sour thoughts every time I encountered a happy couple. Through it all grew an itch. I'd read everything there was to read about the body. But masking my womanhood meant my practical experience was incomplete. My knowledge would never be whole. I'd never be whole. I would have sex with a man. And the more I thought on it, the more I wanted to see a man, a real man, use his parts the way he wants to. I also wanted proof, any proof that I could do it. Be a woman, just for a moment. And maybe, if I could be a woman like that, with a man, in that way, then I could start to think about letting that woman out into the open air. Figuring out how to do the deed, though, was agony. My secret could not be endangered. I briefly considered the bartender, Although he would learn of my deception, his standoffish demeanor would near guarantee his silence. But I could not settle for a near guarantee. My partner's silence had to be certain. And there is nothing more ironclad than death. So I turned my attention to my terminal patients, who had the tools necessary for the job and a pre-scheduled departure. Only problem was, most of the men who had days to live weren't up to the task of, well, giving their all. And that just wouldn't do. Either I'd have a full man or no man at all. I almost gave up on the whole thing. Then Bertram waddled into my office, said he'd been coughing more than normal. And as soon as I heard his first full breath, I knew he was the one. I'd heard that same wheeze before. A shallow, gravelly breath, speaking to the mass that was consuming his lungs, the death he had before him was one of sharp and biting pain, and most that went through it chose a bullet over another day. I laid out his future and illuminated his options. We agreed that he'd take a week to live it up proper. Then I'd use my medicines to usher him into the unknown. At the end of the week, as Bertram lie on my table, eagerly anticipating the prick of my needle... I removed my disguise and offered myself to him. After the initial shock, he agreed. And it was unexpected. Pressed against someone, open, vulnerable, I lost myself. There was a moment during when I think I became a woman, a real woman, and I was scared. It felt like falling. It felt like being pushed into the corset and then torn right back out of it. It felt like being slapped in the face and then laughing and slapping him right back. It felt as naked as I have ever been. But afterwards, I felt the weight of compunction and vowed that this would be my first and my last test. And yet, I think about it all of the time. We talked until his coughs took over. Then it was two needles, a kiss, and goodbye. <laughs> I never regretted the mercy I gave to him. I would choose the same for me. But the... test. The peak into my womanhood. It got away from me. And the part of me that I abandoned, buried, ran from, it feels like she's woken up, like she's coming back, like she's coming for me. So now, I don't know what I am.
0: I guess digging down to the heart of who you are is far deeper than any grave.
1: This above all? To thine own self be true. But not even the Prince of Denmark could heed that advice.
0: Prince of what now? Hamlet. Hamlet?
1: Ah, Never mind. Pleasure Town is written and produced by myself, Aaron Cahoe.
0: And me, Keith Ecker.
1: This episode featured stories by Keith Ecker and Dana Norris.
0: And was performed by Willie Nast and Deanna Moffat. Direction and sound design by Joe Dassault.
1: Our interns are Emily Modaf and Allison Agumakun.
0: Original music was composed and performed by River Rising's Megan Diger and Tim Hazen and engineered by Colin Ashmead Bobbitt. Pleasure Town is a part of the WBEZ Podcast Network. Discover more excellent shows like Nerdette at WBEZ.org slash Pleasure Town.
1: Pleasure Town is an ever-growing interactive narrative which relies on your creativity, your imagination, and especially your voice to expand the legend.
0: Find us on Facebook and Twitter to get regular updates about the show. And join the story now at WBEZ.org slash Pleasure Town.